Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today in the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I talk to one of the true artistic visionaries in music today, Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor. Plus, we'll review the new album from teen phenomenon, The Jonas Brothers. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. Details available at alltechlansing.com. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Ah, yes, never a bad excuse to play a little bit of Minor Threat, the influential uh, hardcore punk band from the early 80s. Why are we playing Minor Threat? Greg, they were epitomized, the Washington, D.C. punk scene. And that scene in Washington is rising up to challenge the merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster, this story we've been covering for months now. It's the biggest story in the concert industry in America today. Seth Hurwitz is a man who runs the famous 930 Rock Club in Washington, D.C. He also has a company called It's My Party that books several other pretty big venues in Washington and Maryland, including the uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion, the big amphitheater in Columbia, Maryland. He has filed a lawsuit against Live Nation, charging the company is a monopoly, that it abuses its monopoly power, that it exercises monopoly power in 19 of the 25 largest concert markets in the United States. Essentially, that it is a big mafia-like bully that elbows everyone else out of the business. Hurwitz is one of the independent promoters, one of the few independent promoters left in America today, who testified on Capitol Hill before the Senate a couple of months ago in the hearings. He was joined by Jerry Michelson of Chicago's Jam Productions. Really, those are the two biggest indie guys left in the U.S. Everybody else is live nation in one degree or another. We are waiting for the Justice Department under President Obama to say yay or nay to this merger. But in the meantime, it appears as if there are going to be other challenges, at least from this one big DC indie concert promoter. There is no doubt, Jim, that Live Nation knows it has a huge public relations problem. It's been trying to combat that this summer by offering no service fee Wednesdays. In other words, they are making uh, select tickets available for its shows nationwide available on Wednesdays only without certain service fees attached. But they are removing, in some cases, uh, double-digit dollars uh, off of those seats, primarily lawn tickets for their amphitheater shows. So they are making an effort to try and combat 
the primary uh, issues that they are facing. The biggest one being this deal with Ticketmaster, where there is no transparency on these fees. In other words, you say the ticket is $25, and then by the time you're done paying it, it's $38. Where did all those fees come from? Well, that's the great irony. Here they are, eager to get in bed as one giant company with Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster has made itself this giant monopoly across the U.S. by inserting those service fees. And now Live Nation is trying to garner a little goodwill by getting rid of the service fee. It's like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And if they're operating this way when they're still two separate companies, how much worse is it going to be when they control all of live music in America? Woke up this morning, the house was cold. Check the furnace, she wasn't burning. When I hopped in my old fold, hit the engine, buddy, she ain't turning. Giving each other some hard lessons lately. We ain't learning. The same sad story, that's a fact. One step up and two steps back. Bruce Springsteen is emerging as one of the few artists who has actually spoken out against this Ticketmaster Live Nation merger, Jim. Uh, He is a rarity in the business right now. But he has come into a little bit of trouble lately due to a uh, look at the Open Public Records Act, which revealed that his recent show at the uh, Meadowlands in East Rutherford, New Jersey, home base for the Springsteen Nation, during that particular show... More than 2,200 tickets were withheld by the Springsteen camp. Mm. 2,200 of the best seats were withheld by the Springsteen camp. Now, this is not exactly new news in a lot of ways. Springsteen and his handlers have consistently withheld prime seats for all of their stadium shows over the last couple of decades and famously have released those tickets at the last second to the fan base, whatever is left over. But the you know, fact- a certain number go to radio and, and press and right. friends and family. Right. It's not like they're necessarily selling these tickets on the secondary market and profiting from them, but they are withholding them back for certain VIP guests and reserving the best sections for those people. Now, what the ticket sellers are saying is, well, by removing 2,200 tickets for a, for a high-profile show like this from the market instantaneously, that is driving up the secondary ticket market. In other words, the scalpers are making a mint on Springsteen tickets because 2,200 of the best tickets were not even made available for sale when those tickets went on sale initially. Look, this obviously came from the people that Springsteen is ticking off, which is Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Uh, And they're floating this. And the scalpers, right? Uh, You know, it's quite different, I think, to use automated computer programs to get an unfair advantage on the fans, to besiege the phone lines, to get these tickets, I think, illegally, and then to sell them at ten times the face value. And and it's a lot different than to have Aunt Susie come and sit, you know, because she's your guest at home when you play at home. <laughs> and you got to wonder, you know, who's planting this story as well, because at the same time that Springsteen has been so outspoken against these uh, ticketing agencies and against the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger, we just had Ethan Smith of the Wall Street Journal on the show a few months ago, where he was talking about this is a very common practice, especially among these big stadium acts. Uh, Neil Diamond, for example, is an artist who is not only pulling tickets off the market, but it's been said that he is putting those mar- yeah. those tickets on the secondary market and actually making a profit from them. And Smith went on to say that more than half of the major stadium acts in in rock and roll do this. So it's interesting that Springsteen is suddenly being singled out for a practice that has been going on for decades. Been the black circle indeed, Jim. Vinyl is back. We've been uh, tracking this story for a couple of years now. Last year, a remarkable resurgence in vinyl sales, up to nearly two million from nothing, basically. A ninety percent increase in in vinyl sales in two thousand and eight. Now, the first half of 2009 looks like it's surging again. Another 50% increase in vinyl sales. Looks like a projected 2.8 million units by the end of 2009 in, in vinyl. A two-pronged uh, effort here. Not only are vinyl addicts trying to remember their youth and buying 
vinyl albums as they surface. But we're seeing a resurgence among the college crowd as well. A younger audience is buying vinyl as as sort of an artifact, an art form. I thought it was fascinating when we did the record store panel for Record Store Day not long ago on this show. We had, you know, retailers, the biggest retailers in in Chicago, in Austin, Texas, and in uh, Los Angeles come in and say that they are getting waves of college kids who, you know, in the same way that some a lover of literature might want to have a hardcover book, they are buying some great album that they truly love in vinyl because that's the ideal way to collect it. And many of these kids do not even have record <laughs> yeah. players. I yeah. thought that was fascinating. One troubling uh, cloud on the horizon, Greg, is that uh, the number of vinyl pressing plants in the United States shrunk down to a mere handful as vinyl was waning, as mm-hmm. CDs became the dominant form, to the point where many of these are backed up months and months. If you're an indie rock band, you want to press a thousand vinyl singles, you know, you might have to wait months to get it back from the plant. If you're Radiohead and you need two million copies of your new album, uh, it, it could be even more difficult because the vinyl plants are, are, are maxed out. It's interesting, too, to note that uh, even though vinyl sales are way up, you know, going to be close to three million by the end of this year, it's a, just a blip on the overall scheme of selling product in the music industry. There's, a, for example, 121 million CDs are going to be sold this year and about 33 million digital albums. So it is a small blip, but any news that's good for the music industry at this point is a welcome sign. Sound Opinions, and that is the song, The Beginning of the End, from the album Year Zero, the 2007 release by Nine Inch Nails. Greg, Trent Reznor, who is Nine Inch Nails, has been one of the most inventive and innovative musicians in the rock world since his debut in 1989 with Pretty Hate Machine, and all the way up through his last album, The Slip, in 2008. Nine Inch Nails records don't sound like anyone else's. He invents his own orchestra's worth of instruments and utilizes it for this genre-blurring sound, you know, metal, dance, thrash, industrial, it's all of the above, and, and it's unique. But we are also fascinated with Trent Reznor because of the way he is attempting to remake the record industry. Year Zero in 2007 was a fascinating multimedia project. With the last couple of releases, uh, Ghosts 1 to 4 and The Slip, Reznor has been reworking the distribution model, giving the music away for free on the net or selling it at different price points in different packages depending on what the fans want. Now he's looking at doing something different with touring as well, maybe getting out of the scene as Nine Inch Nails anyway. We had Reznor come by the Jim and K. Maybe studio for a chat about all of these developments in the world of Nine Inch Nails. Trent, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. Obviously, you've been recording since the, the late 80s, but I think the last two years, it's uh, been a phenomenal transformation on a number of levels, both the business of being in this business and also the art. And where I'd like to start was with Year Zero, maybe the first multimedia concept album in a lot of ways. Talk a bit about the thought process that went into not only making that album, but uh, the way you chose to release it, which was really innovative. Well, thanks. i just kind of come out of uh, a period of inactivity where I was working on just being human again and staying alive. The first record I did after that was With Teeth. That was me finding out if I could write sober, finding out if anyone still cared, and also reinventing uh, or rediscovering how to write music and putting fear in its right place and realizing how much that governed pretty much everything I'd done up to that point. I'm becoming less defined as days go by Fading away, well, you might say I'm losing focus Kind of drifting in the abstract In terms of how I see myself And some of the mistakes I made in that was 
including record label advice, listening to the record label, just including them in the process a little bit. And what I learned from the process of With Teeth was that I don't really care what they think. And I realized that they're, and to qualify that, there's good advice you can get in the creative process, and there's some that slant it more towards just uh, an economic end result. And it became clear to me that the people around me in that world, the only thing they cared about was just moving plastic units. And and that dawned on me about halfway through the process, and I realized what I was up to, and I got my confidence back in that. And I started working on Year Zero with a much more liberated, back-in-control feeling and a, a feeling of artistic confidence that I could do anything I wanted to at this point. And I'd also learned that I actually liked to write, which I'd always feared, because writing was that stark look in the mirror, examining every pore for flaws, and I, I hated that process. You know, I, I always felt I wasn't good enough. And You made a distinction, Trent, between writing prose and writing song lyrics? Well, writing in general, writing lyrics, creating the act of being in the studio, the act of um, writing the music, mm. that's always been the thing that's the most difficult. And I'd always feared it. You know, I, I love the end result. I love the way it makes me feel when I've done something great, but I, I'd hate the process of mining through myself to get there. And I think uh, getting older and getting sober, for sure, revisiting that with a, with a different outlook, I found much to my surprise, and I, I enjoyed it now. Well, well, for people who don't know, I mean, 2007, Year Zero, this sprawling concept album, which, just to use the word album, limits it. Yeah, it started out as just a, in a, a frustration with uh, the direction the country was headed and seeing if I could take Nine Inch Nails in a foreign direction of not writing about myself. And it started just as an experiment that no one I knew no one would have to hear if it sucked. You mm. know? And then as it started taking shape, it was exciting enough that I thought, I'll just ride it out. <laughs> And when the music got finished, that's when the next problem came up, arose, it became very clear, which was, okay, I've written a concept record about a dystopian future place with these characters talking, not in narrative, but just snapshots of life in this time. How do I make this make sense to anybody? And there's no liner notes I could put out because there aren't any records and there aren't even <laughs> yeah. any, there aren't any physical product. We've now, lost right? the triple gatefold sleeve. Yeah. That's when um, it took an interesting turn and got the most exciting to me. We started thinking about how we could utilize the web or the way people communicate now and be able to introduce the experience of this record and take it beyond just being a couple-page synopsis of backstory that the music's supposed to be set in and make it more of an experiential situation. And we... uh, thought about a campaign that really impressed us both, which was uh, the movie AI, the way it was marketed, Mm. Kubrick's last thing. You know, if you looked at the movie poster and you saw credit for uh, sentient robot programming, you know, and if you Googled (laughs) that name, you came up with a website that tied into this whole kind of insanely detailed world that set a backdrop for the actual movie and blurred it. It it took the movie off the screen a bit, spilled over the edges of it. And I Mm. like the idea of... um, how do we make this feel like it, it exists? And how mm. do we let people discover it? And it's not about trying to market a record because it, this is as much the art as the record is, if not more sure, so. Sure. You know? And uh, ended up just spending the record budget on that part of it, basically. And we, we pulled off something that I think was unique and interesting and fully utilized the, the medium that people communicate in today and, and used it as an art form and I feel very proud of how that whole thing came out. It was, it was a fun process. Some say it was a warning Some say it was a sign I was standing right there When it came down from the sky Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we continue our frank discussion with Nine Inch Nails leader Trent Reznor. 
Later on, we're going to review the new album from the Jonas Brothers. Said it was up to us Up to us to sign You've become Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Jim and I are going to continue our conversation with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. You know, Reznor made headlines in 2007 at a concert in Australia when he lashed out against his former record company Interscope for inflating the price of his album, Year Zero. Now remember, last time I was here, I was doing a lot of complaining about the ridiculous prices of CDs down here. And that story got picked up and got carried all around the world, and now my record label all around the world hates me. I didn't get a chance to check. Has the price come down at all? Okay. Well, you know what that means. Steal it. Trent Reznor with a huge YouTube hit uh, <laughs> going up in front of a crowd of people saying, steal my stuff. <laughs> what was going on at that moment, Trent? You'd like your audience to be on your side. And it's frustrating when, as record labels have fallen upon hard times, they're only concerned still about their bottom line. You see it in their strategy of dealing with the internet or their lack of strategy. The concept of suing fans for stealing music, you know, they're stealing it not to make money from it. They're stealing it because they love it and they want it. Mm -hmm. How do you capitalize upon that instead of punish people, you know? And we, we're disproportionately big in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. So when we talk about taking a full production down to play Australia, where it costs a lot of money to get it there, and you're concerned about ticket prices, and you walk into a record shop and you see your record that came out the same day as 10 other bands, and it's... 50% more than everyone else. Mm. And then you ask someone at the label, why is that? You know, we're trying to compete. Well, because you have a strong fan base, we could charge anything we want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I applaud yeah. his honesty for yeah. me, to me. But that doesn't leave a good taste in the fan's mouth. And I, I'm not making that extra money. And that would be something I wouldn't agree with anyway, but that, that's a conversation at least. But you're saying you're going to scalp my fans because it, you can. Well, f you know. Yeah. Just censored myself there, but well, you get the idea. You're mm -hmm. an ardent student of rock history, Trent. I mean, isn't it absurd? You know, we all know about that famous battle Tom Petty had about CD pricing 30 years ago, and then a mere three or four years ago, the battle's still there. It's like you know, the record industry never learns, does it? What feels different to me, you know, as someone that got signed in '89 and got signed to a major in early '90s, the climate then felt a lot more like there were people that loved music that worked at record labels. And the story that you would hear was, excuse me, we're looking at a career artist. You know, they dropped names of bands you respected, The Cure, Depeche Mode, bands that, you know, five mm -hmm. records in were breaking even in a fan base. And those are the things that if you're an act like myself, you want to hear and you want to believe that people are out. And you want to believe, and I did believe, that there was a balance between art and commerce, and they realized they were selling art to make money from it, but there still was an artistic value to things. 
by the late 90s, now all those independent record labels, all the cool indies have been bought up by majors, all mm-hmm. the big majors have been sold to corporations. Um, Interscope was sold to Universal, Universal sold to Vivendi, a French garbage company. You know, So the guy that used to be able to say, yeah, let's go do that, that was above you at the record label, now has to answer to an accountant yeah. who's just looking at quarterly profits, and pretty soon you start getting shuffled into the irritating artist category, <laughs> you know. And labels have been trying everything they can to remove the artist from the equation. I mean, look at something like the Pussycat Dolls. is yeah. manufactured from the ground up right. as product. Each yeah. one replaceable. And there's nothing wrong with product, but when it crowds out the art, then it does feel like it's the wrong thing. You went indie soon after that statement. <laughs> I guess it yeah, was... weird how that happened. And I meant really indie. I mean, indie indie. Like, you became your own record company. You're basically your own mini record industry. Was that a daunting prospect? I mean, obviously, the history with the labels hadn't been the best. But then again, doing it all yourself, that's a kind of a daunting thing as well. What led you to believe that uh, you could do it at, the, at that level? Well, I have a smart manager, and... When we finally were freed from Interscope, you know, it was a five minutes of celebration and then, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> yeah, our bluff was very much called because it's very easy when you're on a label to see what they're doing wrong. But there isn't the, it wasn't clear then and it isn't completely clear now even what the right thing to do without that infrastructure is. You're then left with a choice of, well, do we look for a little indie distributor or a, a cool indie label? But... It seemed like we thought, let's just bypass all of it and just see if we can do everything ourselves. A couple years into it now, I've been able to look at actual numbers. And it has worked out in our case that we're substantially ahead, having done it completely ourselves, than if we would have gone with distributors we could have gone through. The intangibles, though, and these are the things that will catch up to the other bands that are behind me in in terms of doing this on your own, are... When you are completely on your own, suddenly there's no other pocket you can reach in to get money for. Mm-hmm. And, and things like, oh, yeah, we need, need a publicist, right? Yeah. How much is a pump? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we do need that. Okay. Do we need a radio promo? I don't know. Do we need a radio promo guy? What, do we get played on the radio anymore? Do we need a street team? In, I don't know what that does, but there was 20 people in Interscope that seemed to do something with M&M yeah. posters behind them. That, you know. Right, right, right. So you end up not paying for some of those things. And you also end up spending a lot more time thinking about stuff that isn't music, marketing, presentation. How do, yeah. how do we gain the respect of fans to where they feel good about supporting what I do without them feeling ripped off in a climate where they feel all music should be free and they're right to feel that way? I spent a lot of time just um, not making music, trying to th- solve this problem. And through trial and error, I think for Nine Inch Nails... We've discovered some things that work. It's not universal. It doesn't work for a brand new band. I know that. I'm, I'm working on it. Is the most remarkable story in 2008. I mean, first of all, the output, artistic output. Uh, I think you released in that time the equal of the previous 15 years <laughs> <laughs> on labels. I mean, you put out five, uh, five separate discs of music, including a box set of instrumental music, beautiful stuff, huge range of art there. Never got played on radio, as you said, never got no video to, to speak of, uh, no sound scan numbers, and yet in, uh, in one week you were the by far the biggest selling artist in the United States. And the PR campaign was brilliant. A sentence on your website. That was it. I mean, and Cheap. then you get this response. 700,000 orders in a week. You know, you were transparent about the numbers. $1.6 million. That was a huge risk, and it, yet it paid off incredibly well. It was the concept work. Give it, give it away digitally because it is free anyway. You know, to those artists that don't want to believe it. Believe it. Anything, once we move to CDs, you now sell software. Software is not secure. Don't fight it. Embrace it. And you want people to have your music. You know? I do. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
So if we can find a way to make a reasonable amount of profit to cover the costs and we can get it in as many people's hands and heads as possible and you become a champion with the fan rather than a, a tormentor or a, a, someone <laughs> trying to rip them off, you know? Seemed like it worked. You know? Have you seen any fall-off trend in the concert attendance? Because, I mean, you know, clearly if artists are giving their records away or char- or allowing people to download them and pay something if they want, but, but you know, that revenue stream having been gone, the way you're going to pay your rent is by still coming. You're, you're performing in Chicago tonight. Yeah. Is that still vi- vital and vibrant for you? Um, in total honesty, you know, we toured a lot in arenas last year. And our spring tour went on sale and gas prices were the highest it ever been. Mm. And attendance was 80% of what we'd hoped for. Our fall tour went on when the banks all collapsed. <laughs> I think we went on sale that day. And we were 20% down from where we thought. And, it, and this, these were in the North Dakotas and uh, mm. playing half-full arenas in winter and feeling like, maybe this is it. <laughs> is this how it ends? You know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When we decided to make this our last tour, the attendance on this one has been almost double what we expected, you know, and that's that's not bravado, just reality. We're selling out amphitheaters, and it feels great, you know, and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with Jane's addiction. A lot of it has to do with me hyping it up as a final tour, I would imagine. As as a fan of Nine Inch Nails for 20 years, I suppose I should know by now to, uh, you know, accept what you say as fact, but I, I did not believe this last tour thing until you just said it twice here's here's what it comes down to quite honestly is like um i mean laying it on the table from a monetary position in 2005 i was broke and i was in a lawsuit with my ex-manager that got resolved and during the last few years i'm in a place where i feel okay and power's not gonna get shut off tomorrow but I've watched the pages of the calendar kind of fly off and oh, I'm back here again and I'm on tour and I'm playing the same songs and I feel like artistically the best thing for me to do is um, break this while it still is in a good place. I'm not going to quit making music and it may or may not be under the name Nine Inch Nails in the next bit of time. But the idea of taking Nine Inch Nails back on the road and doing the same thing, I feel like it's running its course right now and I want to feel like right now I feel pretty powerful on stage and I feel relevant and I feel like I'm in sync and I don't want it to become Gene Simmons putting on his you know (laughs) demon boots It's funny you say that because uh, Jim and I were talking just before you got here about uh, this whole notion of what happened to that, you know, that amazing group of artists that came up in the early 90s, you know, including yourself, including Jane's Addiction that was that you're touring with now. You're probably the one guy that we can both agree on that said, you know, here you are 20 years later and, you know, you don't do the same old crap. Well, you no, don't feel no, no, like no, it's no. a nostalgia show. And I think, you know, I just want to hit you up with this one little there, there's all sorts of net buzz about the Twitter that you wrote about Chris Cornell. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> justifiably tweaking him for making a terrible record. We didn't uh, like that album either. But you kind of wonder what happened. Oh, that was the worst review we've given in Sound Opinions history, I yeah, think. Yeah, that, was, that was off the charts. Everybody No, I'll tell you what I think it is. Is um, from firsthand experience, when you get a degree of fame, it's character distorting. And I don't, I can't speak for or other peers at the time, but I, you see fame twisting them into different entities. And some people just change into um, maybe they weren't that good in the first place, or maybe what was good about them doesn't exist anymore. I yeah. don't know. In the case of Cornell, I don't know Chris, you know, and. I do know what label he's on now, and I do know who's whispering in his ear. <laughs> Interscope, that would be your yeah. former, yeah. And heavily on the on the With Teeth album, I turned that record in, and I would get back, 
hey, you know, you might want to, maybe we need to put some beats on this record. <laughs> I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm I like, believe you. What do you mean, beats? Well, this urban thing is really taken off. Yeah. You get it in the club. You know, what if we had Dre or somebody? <laughs> and I, the the part of me that wants to be the open-minded artist says, I'll consider that. You know, and it went as far as Timberland doing a, trying to do a remix at Interscope's Dime of uh, Hand That Feeds, which was laughably terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and when I turned in... Year Zero, which I thought had the coolest beats I've ever come up with. And I hear, yeah, we need some cool beats. It's like, you know what? S*** me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm sure there was someone whispering in Cornell's thing. And he can put that off as some kind of socio-cultural <laughs> experiment. But what it was was a money grab. Yeah. And yeah. when you do that, that you're, failed. you're saying to other people that look up to you, yeah. it's okay to do that. And it, it's not okay to do that. Yeah. It isn't. That's how I feel about it. And well, it should he gave, be called us, he gave us something historic. I mean, it is one of the worst albums of all time, and that's a real accomplishment. Well, and then impressively bad. That Brian Eno cliche about the Velvet Underground—that they didn't sell a lot of albums in their time, but everyone who bought one went out and started a band. Yeah. You know, it seems to me that the the legacy of art you've created as Nine Inch Nails has that kind of influence. You know, you have uh, literally created a sonic palette that, that's all your own. I mean, the thrill for me in listening to each record is is it's always difficult to find a guitar that sounds like a guitar. Uh, I think you've taken it to the next level. I'm flattered. I can't say that I can <laughs> agree with everything you're saying, but I appreciate well, you part, saying You know, it's not just blowing smoke <laughs> up your butt. Part of it is any time I talk to anyone who uses, you know, a sampler, a drum machine, or a synthesizer, at some point Nine Inch Nails comes up. Well, and it also points out, a record like The Fragile, which I think is one of the best records of the last 20 years that anybody's yeah. made. And I remember talking to you at that time, and you were very disappointed in the fact that nobody seemed to even know that record existed. And you think, well, what if that record had come out in 1977 or 1967? It would have been, it would have blown people's minds. But I think Jim's right, that that record is the same kind of thing. It's like, maybe it didn't sell a lot, but people still listen to that record today. It still holds up. It's one of those records people go to, oh my God, how do you do that? have enough distance and perspective on it to say that's worthwhile to me now no I from that standpoint I've all I always loved that record it was um, I think when you would have talked to me it was in the major stings of realizing what I'd mentioned earlier where the transition from labels of going from helping sub- sell your art to people now it's just product and mm. what is this weird thing you've given us that was when Interscope really showed their true colors. And, and that was a painful process to be on a tour to find out, hey, your masterpiece has just been left to, you know. Sorry it wasn't. It, it, it's not uh, Eminem's 50 Cent's new record, so yeah. it's not good. And to some degree, I think that with what you're seeing happening in the way people are experiencing music now, it is, I think, more difficult to keep people's attention and to the nature of collecting music and to the super fanatic that your record leaked and they immediately want to get it. You know, and I got it before you did. Did you get the record? Yeah. And I've already said, it's great or it sucks. And mm-hmm. what's the next one? Because my iPod needs to be filled up with stuff and I haven't even listened to all the stuff I have. And it's sometimes frustrating to look in terms of making a full length album that's taken X amount of time to do and it's consumed so quickly mm-hmm. that no one spends time with it anymore. Well, there was nothing nothing disposable about that sound, though, that Jim was talking about. And, you know, in a lot of ways, when you came out in the late 80s, it was innovative. It was like, wow, this this is rock, but it doesn't sound like traditional rock instruments being used. Where did those ideas come from? I mean, obviously, you're combining an element of avant-garde with, you know, the hardest edge of punk and, and, and doing something that was your own. But always melodic. Yeah. You know, I think what it was was the look through the eyes of somebody that plays keyboards and likes electronics and had just discovered 
the power of breaking those electronics and being able to to incorporate some of the aggression and noise of from heavy metal to traditional industrial electronic experimental things. That was my sonic toolkit. sound when it came time to put things together okay I can you know I used Prince as an influence and it's flattering to hear what you said earlier because I'd always aspired to have it sounds like you, know, you could tell if he's playing guitar or you yeah. could tell if it's his drum program and wow it's all coming out of one guy I wish I could have that kind of identity so as the kind of guy mixing everything together with that influence when I started writing music as much as I wanted to be Genesis P. Orridge and the edgiest, freakiest, weirdest avant-garde mind in the world. I'd grown up on 18 years of living in of Cornfield in Pennsylvania with AM radio and Foreigner records and you know, <laughs> <laughs> choruses and melodies and structure that had come, become kind of embedded, you know. And when I'd listen to some things, what I'd miss about a th- in a throbbing gristle track would be some tangible element you could come back to, you know, mm-hmm. a chorus of some sort, you know, something. It doesn't have to be a doesn't have to be a Beatlesque hook in there, but some something that made it emotionally feel gratifying. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. This stuff was happening in the Midwest because there was also the wax tracks thing and ministry yeah. and all that. How big? How did that factor in at all to what you were doing? The whole wax track scene was a huge influence, and that would have been the number one place we would have wanted to wind up, you know, because it was a lot of what Jorgensen was doing seemed wildly exciting to me because it was it was the kind of thing I was inter- interested in, you know, sequencers and synthesizers, but they didn't sound like human league. You know, right, it sounded like right. people that broke them somehow, and they sounded terrifying, and I'd never heard things like that. And it excited me that it didn't feel retro. This felt like new technology coming into play and... I was right there when sequencers became affordable and could run on a Commodore 64 with a cartridge in the back, and you know it became a tool that was my became my band. Yeah, you've talked about this on stage before. You've, you've mentioned it in interviews, but uh, I, I do. Is your mind still blown that Johnny Cash covered your song? Oh, <laughs> it still seems weird. You know, it is weird. You know, it's very flattering from a songwriting perspective. You know, to have somebody who is a great songwriter asked to cover your song and then weirdly turn probably the most personal song I've written into something that isn't yours anymore. It was a strange, yeah. strange thing to witness. And I don't feel like I had much to do with it other than weirdly feel flattered through the whole process. And, and I'm, Right, right. But, I mean, when all is said and done, that's something that's in your, your tombstone, uh, yeah. on your tombstone in your own. But, you know, Johnny Cash <laughs> took took a song by mine and made it into a masterpiece. Yeah, and it, it made me legitimate where I came from. So, yeah. you know. Well, you the guy that did that Johnny Cash song. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, right. I think Let me buy you a beer. I think, yeah. it, I think what it also pointed out, and, and it certainly clarified for me, you're a songwriter. I mean, people talk so, about the sound, but there there's songs underneath that sound that are that are holding up. I'm trying know? to keep that <laughs> under the line. So let's move on. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real Trent Reznor, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Thanks for coming. Flattered to be here. Thanks for having me. The old familiar sting Try to 
kill it all away But I remember everything If you want to comment on our conversation with Trent Reznor or share any of your critical opinions, give us a call at 888-859-1800. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our review of the new album from Teen Sensations, The Jonas Brothers. Goes away in the air. And you could have it all My empire of dirt Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. Details available at alltechlansing.com. I make the most of all the stress I try to live without regrets But I'm about to break a sweat I'm freaking out it's like a poison in my brain It's like a fog that blurs the same It's like a vine you can't untangle I'm freaking out Every time I turn around Something don't feel Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Paranoid, one of the first singles from the new Jonas Brothers album, Lines, Vines, and Trying Times. Who are the Jonas Brothers and why are we talking about them on Sound Opinions? Well, they are nothing less than the reigning pop phenom of the moment. Created by Disney, pushed by Hollywood Records. But, Greg, you know, these are harrowing financial times. And I think, <laughs> like every major American corporation, yeah. these well coiffed brothers from Wyckoff, New Jersey, are uh, facing a challenge in staying connected and profitable with their marketplace. This is the fourth album for the Jonas Brothers. And they've already had two go-rounds on the merry-go-round. You know, they had a career where they were signed to Columbia Records in, in mid-decade, didn't sell, and were dropped. They thought it was done then, before mm-hmm. the mouse, Hollywood picked them up, made them superstars. Now, their fan base of 9- to 13-year-old girls is getting older. They're graduating from Harry Potter to the Twilight series, okay? Mm-hmm. How do the Jonases stay relevant? Well, these three guys who write their own songs, allegedly, and, you know, record their own music and sing uh, and look pretty, they did a charity gig with Neil Diamond earlier this year, and they were inspired on this fourth album to kind of go Diamond. They wanted to expand. (laughs) They wanted to mature. They know their audience is getting older. They wanted to keep up. So they brought in the horns. They brought in the orchestras. They brought in the stylistic dabbling. Is it an artistic success? Well, uh, we'll give our opinion in a minute and rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. But let's play a piece of Jonas Brothers art, shall we? This is called World War Three by the Jonas Brothers from Lines, Vines, and Trying Time. Now 
World War III on sound opinions from Lines, Vines, and Trying Times, the fourth studio album from the Jonas Brothers. Quite prolific. Kevin's only 21, Joe's 19, Nick is all of 16. They've already got four studio albums out. That's a, that's a career in itself right there. And in that song, World War III, you hear everything that's going on in this album, the new developments in the Jonas Brothers camp. <laughs> You know, no, notice those big, bigger soul orchestrations, the yep. horns. You notice the vocals. He's st- sort of straining for that falsetto, faux soul, Motown sound. And uh, you've got the lyrics. They're now speaking in metaphors. Forget about the popular pronouncements. It's now a metaphorical. World War Three is breaking out in our bedroom, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and there's also the one where, where love, you know, Greg, is like poison ivy. It is. It's like it's poison ivy. It's a rash. There are, there are many songs that are symbolic in, in nature on this record. Sophistication. They're becoming adults. You know, you mentioned the Neil Diamond connection earlier, Jim, but I, I thought the real sign of where this record was going was when they did that collaboration with Stevie Wonder at the Grammy Awards back in February. And right away I'm going, wow, what's wrong with this picture? Stevie Wonder tolerating these three bozos up there in stage. Yeah. I mean, I don't particularly love or hate these guys. I think they're, they're fine for what they are. I thought the last album was a nice little power pop record in a kind of a juvenile way, a stepping stone record for these teenage girls you were talking about. But on this record, they're trying to grow up, and, and clearly they're not ready for it. The one saving grace of their earlier records was that they were sort of peppy and energetic and exuberant, and they really weren't pretending to be anything more than they really were. On this record, they're striving for a sophistication in the lyrics and the arrangements that are just ponderous. I mean, they, they don't sound very good anymore. The songs are not there anymore, and that was their only calling card. Well, at least it's a nice, pleasant, guilty pleasure. You can't even say that about these guys anymore. No, they were aiming for Neil Diamond, and they wound up with Wayne Newton. Diamond uh, can laugh at himself, and these guys have no sense of humor whatsoever. Uh, You said you could take them or leave them. I I actively hate them. I know you do, yeah. Because I think that there is an element of sexism here. While they they talk a lot about their chastity and how they're saving themselves, they're also talking nonstop about frustration. They're taking pot shots at former girlfriends, you know, Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift. And it's like, like these bozos should just go away. These are all platonic relationships, Jim. You're missing the boat. It's, it's then what the are they so thing. frustrated about? You know, they're talking about this itch they cannot scratch in Poison Ivy. Um, so yeah, in the past it was merely annoying, and now it's pretentious <laughs> and annoying. This is absolutely a trash it record. I, I, would, I would take two copies and trash them both. Well, I'm not nearly as outraged as you are, Jim, but yeah, it's, it's a bad record. It's not, not very enjoyable. It's a trash it. Well, we hope to have more enjoyable music on the show next week. What is coming up, Mr. Cott? I guarantee we will have more enjoyable music next week, Jim. We have chef, author, and punk rocker Anthony Bourdain to talk about the intersection of food and music. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say. Mary Gaffney recorded our conversation with Trent Reznor, and Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, the latter two of whom got married this weekend. How about that? And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, is our man, despite the fact that he spends an inordinate amount of time trying to get his hair to look like Joe Jonas's.
busy every time that I phone. Buzz is the longest talker I ever known. Buzz, buzz, I've been trying hard to reach him all day. Buzz, when I get him, I forget what to say. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi guys, this is Courtney calling from Brooklyn, New York. I was just catching up on the podcast and I was so pleased to hear you acknowledging what Nine Inch Nails are doing to raise money for Eric De La Cruz. And these days we've been hearing so much about how Ticketmaster and Live Nation and artists themselves are gouging their fans and lining their own pockets with their special VIP packages and auctions and stuff. But seeing Trent Reznor using his fame, not only to think creatively about music and marketing and technology, but also about how to help people on a basic and meaningful level, that makes me really proud to be a fan. So thanks for letting people know about that, and I love the show, so keep up the good work. Uh, Hello, my name is Paul. I just want to say thank you for putting Steve Earle on the air. I'm just listening to your show about Towns Van Zandt. Steve Earle himself is such a good storyteller, songwriter. The way he speaks, his turns of phrase are so good to hear. There's just this connection between people like him and people like Mark Twain. It's all part of what is best about this country's um, contribution to the world and music and literature and everything. Take care. Bye-bye. Go soft as glass I'm a gentle man We got this guy to talk about And the earth to lie upon Hi. Yeah, my name's uh, Rami. I live in uh, a cultural cul-de-sac down here in uh, Lincoln County. It's a county seat, Stanford, Kentucky. Uh, I was just calling about your uh, show on Townsman Sand. And thanks to Steve Earle for putting this album out. It's like going to be my favorite album this summer, I think. Townsman, we miss you, man. Nothing is too much to bear. Where you've been is good and gone. All you keeps getting there. Where the list to fly. Hey guys, Travis here from Birmingham, Alabama, and on your buy it, burn it, trash it scale, let me tell you what I don't buy, and that is your review of the new Dave Matthews record. Jim, you clearly detested this record, and yet you gave it a burn it rating, and Greg, I didn't sound like you were that excited about it either, and you gave it a buy it, and I'm just trying to figure out the reasons for that. I don't know if you feel pressured from the fans or... Maybe it's the difference between trying to provide objective criticism, even if you're not crazy about a particular record. At any rate, based on that song that you played for us, I won't be buying Dave Matthews' record anytime soon. It sounds like a noisy classroom of undisciplined fifth graders to me. So thanks for the warning, and thanks for the show. I always enjoy it. Bye. This is Jeff from Raleigh calling about the new Black Eyed Peas album, and I just wanted to express my disappointment that Party All the Time isn't a cover of the song Eddie Murphy did with Rick James in the mid-80s. I think we all can agree that would have been really funny. But hey, thanks for the show. It's always a pleasure. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.